Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader, and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Susie Push, owner of handbags and accessories company Bungalow 360 in California. Bungalow 360 is renowned for its whimsical animal themes, exemplifying the company's commitment to protecting the planet's species and environment. Products are crafted of natural cotton canvas and printed with water-based inks. The line consists of handbags, wallets, kids' accessories and vegan leather items, with a new bamboo line in the works. Susie started out handcrafting the bags herself nearly 20 years ago in 1998 while working as a receptionist at Mossimo, a trendy lifestyle brand in California. She learned about sales and distribution, which came in handy when she decided to quit her job and work full-time on Bungalow 360. Her products are available in around 2,000 independent boutiques, gift shops and health food stores across the US. And she operates the business from her home on a farm in Fullbrook, California. Bungalow 360 is big on sustainability, using alternative energy sources such as solar, and it's known for its philanthropy towards animal causes. As well as financial donations to various animal advocacy organisations, the company also provided solar panels to the Gentle Barn Animal Sanctuary. In this interview, Susie talks about why she doesn't follow trends when designing her products, why she manufactures her products in China rather than the US, be prepared to set aside any preconceived ideas you may have around this, why she decided to stop selling her products to department stores such as Nordstrom and deliberately kept her business smaller, how she handled other companies stealing her designs, how she used guerrilla marketing tactics to raise her brand profile and make sales, and much more. Here's the interview with Susie Push of Bungalow 360. Hello, Susie. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, how are you? Fantastic. And I'm very excited and looking forward to to speaking with you today because you've got such a a great story that I know listeners are going to be very inspired by. Um, So the very first question I always kick off with everyone. So let's start there is why, you know, what's the reasons for running your vegan business? Why do you do it? Um, That's a, God, that's a really deep question because it started (laughs) without a plan. I had no business plan and I just wanted to make be creative and have fun. And um, so everything kind of evolved from that. Um, I started out as a handcrafted business, just finding cool fabric and then sewing up one of a kind bags and then selling them at the farmer's market and college campuses and flea markets. Um, And I kept a a day job while I did that. And I did that for about three to five years. Um, And surprisingly, that was a very, actually very competitive at the time because we didn't have social media. We didn't have Etsy. So, you know, I'm in California, so we had LA and we have these in San Diego. So there's lots of opportunities to go out and sell 
your product on campuses and such. But um, that was a lot of fun. I really got to know my customers and then kind of where I wanted to go with my business was all because I I did it that way as opposed to having a a plan in in place. You know, I don't think I would have been successful if I had a plan in place. But because of the way I did it, I learned so much from just going out there and doing it. Um, um, So that's kind of my story. (laughs) Sure. Wow. So that's lovely. So you had that, obviously, that creative aspect and you came from that real kind of creative point of view. And obviously you made your bags vegan, um, you know, because of the the passion. And I I love how you've you've managed to turn that into a business because I think that's very inspiring for people to hear. And I know some people listening or some, you know, business expert will be listening and saying, oh, gosh, you didn't have a business plan. That's terrible. So I love that you're a really good example of, you know, sometimes you just kind of go with the flow and it, it can work out so that that's fantastic um so tell us a little bit about the the story but we mentioned a little bit about the the, the brand itself what about the name bungalow 360 i'm curious about that well it's um i was working at um a day job at a company called Massimo. there he's a surf brand out here in california who's he, he was became quite successful and he moved um he was like the first designer to move his product into target um, so I was their receptionist there and on the side, I was making my bags and someone in the accounting department was like, do you want to have a home party? And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, oh, you just bring your bags and I'll throw a party and we'll bring some girls over. And that night I sold out. And so word kind of got around in the office that I was doing this. And one of the designers came up to me and she's like, you really need to put a la- label on your bag and you need to have a name. And I would not have thought of that unless she told me to do that. Um, <laughs> so then I went home and I was like, I lived in Laguna and I was living in a bungalow and my address was 360. And I'm just like, and that's where I was being that little creative person was in my little bungalow. And so that's how I got the name, you know, and it's funny 20 years later to see that number 360 being used on everything. It's kind of exciting. Cause I was, you know, I used it 20 years ago when no one was really using it and now it's kind of everywhere. So Right. Well, wow, that's lovely. I love hearing that story because everybody's got such a different way, you know, of coming up with their their brand name. Um, and, you know, and some people kind of spend forever kind of coming up with something. And I love that, you know, you've just kind of went, OK, I live here and this is my number. I'm just going to go with this. And right. Not knowing really that 20 years later, we'd still be using it. And and yeah. I actually went home that day and I, I found some like um, iron on paper that you get at, you know, the um, computer store. And I was I, I was making labels by ironing them onto fabric and then cutting them out and sewing them onto my bag. That's how I first wow. started doing my labels. Um, Fantastic. And the funny thing about Massimo was I got I worked there when I was in my 30s, and I had gone to like I was working in the restaurant industry, and um, I was kind of getting burnt out of the restaurant industry. So I thought I went to a temp ag- agency. And I took all the tests that, you know, you have to do like typing and spelling and I failed them all. (laughs) The ladies were in a huddle and they're like, what are we going to do with her? And I was like, I just want to do something creative and really naive. Like, and they're like, eyes would roll. I'm like, oh my gosh. And so finally I'm like, I can answer a phone really good. And so then they literally gave me these papers and said, go here, go to this address. And that's where I had my interview at Massimo. Um, so that's kind of a, Fantastic. and the unique thing about that was when I was there, he was about to go under, like he had, he was about to, his business was about to go under. He had some manufacturing issues and, um, he had brought in the guy that used to be the CEO at, um, 
Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren. And so all these people were there in this office trying to build this company back. And I was like there in the center of it. So I was like a sponge, you know. Nice. So nice. I don't have any, you know, schooling or business classes or anything like that. But to me, that was my school, you know, oh, to be absolutely. around all that. And, you know, to see the accounting department, like they seriously had an accounting department of like 15 people that were just calling the big department stores who were late on payment. You know, so I immediately knew, oh, I'm only going to take credit cards. So I've never really extended 30-day net to any customers, except for like Smithsonian, you know, someone who's very much been around and they're going to pay. So um, that's one lesson to learn. Don't give 30-day net, you know, unless you really know who the customer is. So Got it. So does that include wholesalers then, Susie? So you, everything's paid up front? Yeah, well, that's my business for now. Like we, we only do wholesale. Um, oh, okay. You don't yeah, sell we to only the sell anymore. to stores technically. And then I'll do a farmer's market or I'll do a veggie fest or I'll do something like that where I go out and sell it to the customer, but it's not something I do um, as, you know, I just do that for fun to keep in touch with our customers. Oh, cool. So they can't buy online or anything then? It's literally just through the stores? Well, you know, we, we can't. You can buy online. We actually, for the we haven't updated our website in years. We just did. Um, so that was an interesting thing because we kept debating because I'd get hate mail like, oh, your website sucks. And, you know, because we couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't see it on your iPhone because we, like my husband built the website and he only knew so much technology to build it. And then we, we, we looked into hiring people. We just didn't like the way it looked or felt. So we just kind of um, didn't go forward with it. But in the meantime, Amazon came about. So what was happening was like uh, our stores would buy from us and then they'd put it up on Amazon. So then I was able to go to our customers like, oh, our out- website's outdated. You can go to Amazon. And for a while, that was like working fantastic for us because then Amazon had to deal with all the customer service and the shipping and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But now we're, we've had to kind of just in the last couple of months, we've re- we've re- realized that it's like the Wild West out there on Amazon. And there's some things that we have to go back up and um, clean up just so that our product gets represented correctly on Amazon. And then we have right. an updated website too, which we're really happy about. So, uh, but it's not, so, wasn't one of those most important things to us because we were dealing mostly with wholesale. With wholesale, right. So even with wholesale, then you basically require advance payment and they're okay with that rather than the, the credit, 30 day credit. Yeah. I mean, because we don't, um, we don't sell to any department stores right now. Um, that's a whole another beast is selling to department stores. So we sell to like, you know, we sell to like lots of touristy areas and um, environmental stores and vegan stores. And because um, our product has very whimsical animal graphics and um, yeah, so, so that's kind of our customer. It's not like um, we're selling to Whole Foods, even though we have in the past, it's just um, you kind of need a full staff to to deal with department stores where we're kind of in that sweet spot where we, we've been doing business long enough that we have our customers, we bring in the product and then we sell it to, you know, we kind of know what we're going to sell through and um, we keep it small. I've kept my business small, which is, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, that's an interesting one, actually. So you've deliberately kept it small. Right. Um, One of my, like when I was selling at one of the flea markets, these guys came by and, they 
asked me to do a custom bag for them. And then um, I did, and he loved it. And then he asked me to do 200 bags. He actually owned a makeup company. And I was like, cool, I will. If I, if I can ha- keep my, you know, at the time I wasn't in any stores yet. I'm like, if I can um, keep my hang tag on the bag, just so I get a little bit of promotion, since he wanted me to put his label on the bags. So he used to do this for his top accounts. He would send them at the end of the year, like a goodie bag. Um, And so I did that. And then all of a sudden, Nordstrom's calls me and wants to order bags. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how exciting. And so um, I'm like, I just went for it, not knowing what it was going to be about. And it was like, for me, it was just not. I mean, there I am selling 200 bags myself of the same bag. And then, like, the whole process of, you know, it has to be labeled correctly and then, um, there's just so many, much paperwork and rules and, you know, it's, it's just, to me, I'm like, that's not fun anymore. So I kind of thought, you know what, I don't, you know, there's other ways you can sell like to different stores other than the department stores. Cause they kind of, if you're a small company, they can just eat you up and spit you out, you know, especially yeah, if you can't make you're the, sharing this. Yeah. This is, especially this if you is can't really make good. your deliveries, you know, and we make, we, we have great sales, so I'm not, you know, we're happy with where we are right now. It's not like, you know, I know we probably as a business could be making a lot more money, but it's at what cost, you know, and then That's a really my job point. and my job then becomes someone who is managing people and employees and all that creativity that goes into my product gets sucked out, you know, um, that's just my yeah. how my view that's is. fantastic now I love that you're sharing this is really good because like you said there are very different business models and it's what works for you and sometimes there's an assumption that oh if I start my own business you know the goal is to make it as you know big as possible but that's not necessary like you say at what cost you know if it's a cost to your soul or your health or you know whatever other um, aspect of your life then uh, you know it's maybe not the way to go so I love that you've um, yeah deliberately done that so t- did you fulfill that thing with North? Like, did you initially go with department stores and then realize, oh, no, this is not the way I go and then pull back? Yeah, no, I did. I did um, do the I we sold to maybe 10 different Nordstrom's um, and then it came down to I think they needed UPC codes, which is, was very expensive at the time. And I said, well, I don't really want to pay for the UPC codes. And um, it just kind of. Uh, went away and then we did sell to um and then that was when I was still hand making them and then I found a manufacturer and I started um I had the opportunity to design our own fabric which really set us apart from all the other companies that were like me who got the same fabric and were selling the same type of bag out there at the farmer's market now I had the opportunity to put our own graphics that nobody else had on our bags and that's kind of when we kind of got really into a lot of stores. Um, I just lost my thought. Where was I going with that? Um, oh, just about the initially you went with the department stores, but then. Oh yeah, and so um, we did. So I did. I was doing a lot of trade shows, mostly in the gifts market. Um, and um, Whole Foods did order from us, and we did sell to them, and it was fine. But it came back to that thing where at the time we had, you know, a thousand other stores that were so easy. And then this one would just slow us down because of all the requirements. And so then I was like, you know, it just doesn't feel right to me, you know? Yeah. So, so that's kind of, so it happened twice where I, I, I had that opportunity and, 
And so basically at the trade shows, if Walmart or one of those big department stores came up, I would just say, I can't sell to you. And they would just walk away. So, um, Wow. It's amazing. It's so kind of good to hear this because I can hear people you know, sort of listening to thinking, oh, my God. But, you know, but it is. It's about what is right for you. So um, in that case, because you Hello? talked about some of the. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? OK. I can hear you. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, OK, cool. That's <laughs> all right. Now, this is brilliant. I'm really glad you're sharing this because, um, you know, it just really shows that, you know, you can walk away from these big clients, that are, you know, these big, uh, yeah, these big customers, uh, potential customers and still have a successful business and stay true to yourself. And uh, so I really love that you're, you're sharing. This is a fantastic story. Um, so you've talked about, I guess, some of the, the challenges when you, you, you first started up. Um, I think you've sort of covered um some of those um, aspects so in terms of the when you're supplying to stores now like you say you, you know you supply wholesale now to to the independent stores or eco stores vegan stores so do you kind of handle that all yourself still or do you have like a some kind of just like you work with a wholesaler and distributor so that they take care of all that paperwork type stuff no we do all that ourselves um, we have a three-person team here it's my husband and then we have a sales manager we brought on maybe two years ago. Um, so we do all that ourselves. We receive the shipment. Um, and what's unique with the, when we get a shipment, we need like 10 really strong guys here. And we're just, we're lucky that we're in a, like a near a military town. So we hire Marines to come out for the day um, and help unload the container. Cause we're on a two acre farm running our business out of you know, like a home base type business, but it's, you know, um, on a farm that we've kind of made into a business venture. Um, so we don't go to an office every day. Fantastic. Wow. So again, I love the way you're, you're fitting this whole thing into your lifestyle, which is, is awesome. Um, so that's great. So now, look, you touched on the, the manufacturing side of things. So I believe you still initially design your bags. And at one point, obviously, you were hand making them. And then you had to, um, you know, find a, a factory or an outlet to make them for you. Now, I what I find interesting is that, you know, there's a lot of emphasis in particularly in ethical circles on buying locally made goods, you know, the whole made in the USA. Mm-hmm. is seen the sign is that you're supporting the local economy and being more environmentally friendly and probably even more so nowadays with a certain new president um, <laughs> but your products are actually made in China and mm-hmm. you've got a unique perspective on this so tell us a little bit about that yeah um, well I absolutely support locally sourced you know um, anything and sustainability and all of that and we first, when we first started making our product, once we started getting a little bigger, I went to downtown LA and unfortunately the only thing left in LA right now is, and this is, this is, I haven't, you know, manufactured in LA in over 10 years. So um, that's how it was then. I don't know if things have changed, but I don't think so. But um, all that was in America were, were um, pretty much sweatshops. Um, in the sense of like, I even went to like the fashion Institute. I was like, do you have a list of factories that are good that aren't sweatshops? And the lady goes, there's no such thing down here. Um, and then I found some guys that said they would, you know, make the bags for me and stuff. And, um, it just was a really bad experience for me. I had my fabric stolen. I had products stolen. And then when I'd go in there, it just was not the conditions that one would think are made in USA. It's not like there's, you know, this magical 
college students sewing bags are all, you know, mostly immigrants that probably aren't getting paid a fair wage, but it's in USA. Um, and that's why I never understood how, oh, made in USA is so great. It's different if you go to a, a local farmer's market and there's a girl there that's hand sewing her bags. But I'm talking about now when you turn that into something where you need to produce a little more. Um, right. And I was just never able to source or find a place that could do that for me. I had places that could maybe sew, but I'd have to source the hardware, the fabric, everything overseas. Um, and so um, when I was approached by some manufacturers at a trade show, they were from India, and um, I was not keen on doing anything overseas at all. Um, and they were just like, oh, we take on one small company a year and we've decided you're it. And they gave me this whole line. And so I'm like, what do I have to lose? You know, they're, they're not going to make me pay up front. So if it doesn't come in right, I just won't pay. And so, um, I entered a, you know, a relationship with them and they, it was a nightmare. Um, they didn't deliver on time. The buckles came in rusted and it was just like, oh my God, like I was in tears. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Um, but then I, I, you know, I, I got through that and then I, you know, went to a competitor that was, you know, um, they were living in America, but they owned a factory in China. And I asked, you know, started talking to them about this and how their factory was and everything. And um, they started making our bags first and we're still with them. We've not like I'm not we don't. Like the way China usually works, like if you're a big company is you'll get a job and then you'll have like six different manufacturers and you'll let everyone know that job's available. And usually the way, you know, it goes is whoever comes in the cheapest and the fastest turnaround gets that job. And that's where you run into problems, I think, with sweatshops and um, unethical factories and stuff. But, you know, our factory is they have karaoke nights, they get fed. It's just like the factories in China are, are really different than what, how people do business over here. Um, so um, we're really happy to be working. I mean, for me, I see it more as we're one planet, one world. We're not, it's not, it's, we're like living in a globalized nation. It's not, you know, planet USA, it's planet earth. So, you know, and, you know, I've gotten hate mail over the years. People assume that we're made in the USA and then they find it, it, you know, a China label. And I'm always like, well, how did you email me? Was it on a computer or an iPhone? Because those aren't made in America. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how are you picking and choosing what gets made? And, you know, we try really hard to make sure that all the, you know, things are in place, that the employees are being taken care of, and things are done in the best way that they can be. And we're not gouging for prices and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, I, I love that. I love and then, that you, there are those assumptions, aren't they? It's like, you know, you see that are oh, made in China and you immediately think, oh, there's, you know, six year old children sitting there, you know. Well, and I um, think it, that's how it used to be. I, I really do think that that's how it used to be. But they really, you know, that all became in the public eye years ago and they cleaned it up. I mean, I'm not saying that all factories are perfect. So I'm sure there's a plenty that aren't. But yeah. the one I use, I'm very happy with. And then I always thought, like, I would look at there's a company in, in California in LA called American Apparel. I'm like, how did he do it? How did he figure out how to do it in America? And um, maybe about five years ago, there was this huge report how um, they found that 90% of his staff were illegal immigrants. And so he lost his whole, he almost went out, I think they actually went out of business. I'm not sure what happened, but um, not because of this, but they, um, there was a thing on the news, like, 
if you need a job, all you have to do is show that you can work this equipment. And they, no one was showing up for these jobs in America. So it's, I think that, you know, you have to kind of technology comes in and takes over jobs and then other jobs are formed. And, you know, I just have a different way of looking at it, but the reason he was yeah. able to do it in America was he was because the his, the majority of his staff was not um, it wasn't like people were going to college to become factory workers you know that's not right. happening so right. you know it's I think there's a, a conversation that still needs to be done regarding all of this you know um, and we're definitely having it here in America um, due to our election um, yeah. <laughs> that we had so. <laughs> Um, yeah, so good. No, that's I really kind of where that I'm at. That. Yeah, no, I really like that. I like that you shared that and that you you challenge those assumptions. Like you've literally kind of turned that on its head. Like you said, you know, actually the made in the USA, you know, a lot of those are actually sweatshops. And whereas, uh, you know, your um, factory that you're using in China is actually ethical. So I think it's important for us to know, you know, not to make assumptions. And I love that you explain that very clearly on your website. You've got a link to where it says made in China and then you've got for more info. Because when I saw it, I was like, oh, made in China, really? You know, I had that kind of right. similar reaction. And then I clicked through and I read and I was like, cool fair enough and I think that really helps to educate your customers um you know rather than like than having them like you say you know sending you hate mail like oh how come they're made in China is to really explain that and I love that you do that thoroughly on your website as well as sharing that here so that that's fantastic thank you so look in terms of competition Susie like I say you've been around for a long time mm-hmm. um like you say 20 years and, and nowadays there are you know there's a much more diverse range of vegan bags and accessories um how do you go about continuing to stand out both within and outside the vegan business arena and maintaining a regular flow of customers? Yeah, for us, it's pretty easy because we copyright all of our graphics. So, you know, um, early on, we did get knocked off on our graphics and we just, we got in one of the top copyright attorneys and we sued them. Um, I don't like doing stuff like that, but you kind of have to, to send a message like we, we have an attorney stop doing that. Um, in all three cases, we won because it was just right out. They knocked off our graphics. The difficult part is you can't really copyright design. So I've had many people who have copied our design, um, like something that's, that we sat down and sketched out and designed ourselves that was unique to our company. We've had bigger companies steal that, um, wow. that design. And there's, just, there's not a lot we can do with that. And so I'm, I'm all for competition, like, Tons of bad companies are competing. I just don't like that people steal other people's ideas and claim it as theirs. And like I've had verbiage stolen from me, which is I'm like, why would you do that? That has nothing to do with you, you know. Like, um, yeah. And but I learned that early on because even though I was selling at the like the Rose Bowl flea market and the Fairfax flea market, it was very like eye opening that. You know, I would, you know, share a booth with someone who has jewelry and I'd, like, I'd tell them where I got my fabric and I was like very naive and, you know, the next month I'd show up and that jewelry girl, jewelry, jewelry girl had her own booth and was selling bags just like mine also. Oh, so it was one of those things where you start, like, I started to be very protective of our product and like when I did trade shows, like everyone thought I was crazy because I would cover my booth up completely like you you'd have a little door that you could go in I'd make it look like a little bungalow and like all the you know everyone was like you're crazy why are you covering your stuff up and I'm like because if if someone is a buyer that's going to make them want to go in 
But if you're someone that wants to copy or you don't want to make your presence known that well. Right. And so right. that for me always works. Because when you put yourself out there at a trade show, it's your product's out there. And, you know, there's big companies search trade shows just to get ideas and stuff. Right. So that, I mean, that's part of every business. I think if you have a good idea and you're successful, you're always going to have that. Um, and you just have to have a good, you know, attorney in place in case someone gets too close and you have to just go after them. You know, that's just, uh, but that's the bad, that's the only bad part of the business that I really don't like. Um, uh, So I guess in terms of standing out, you use very unique uh, designs and and over the years you've built up that customer loyalty so that people recognize your brand. Would that be fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because we don't go, oh, anchors are in let's do anchors no we, we're more of what's not out there what are we feeling like a woodpecker might come up to my window and i'm like oh my gosh you're so cute let's do woodpeckers you know we haven't done koala bears yet so that's a possibility oh. <laughs> Koalas <laughs> you know so <laughs> whatever you know um we don't we don't like i don't have i just kind of like when it's time i'm like i have ideas going on percolating and then i kind of like settle on certain things um, and we go forward with them. Cool. So in terms of then the, the the marketing and the PR side of things, you know, getting it out there, obviously you, this was more when you started out, it was pretty much pre-internet or just on the cusp of, you know, the internet right. becoming quite big. Um, so what have been some of the marketing strategies that you've used that are, have been successful in growing Bungalow 360? Um, well, Early on, I always thought, oh, I have to get in the hands of celebrities and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we did. Like, I would do, like, a chili festival in Malibu, which, you know, 85% of the customers are celebrities that would come out. So we got our hands into, you know, that way. Um, but nowadays, it's different because every celebrity has their own brand. So I would I would not suggest people send product to celebrities. Um, and... It, I think with social media nowadays that that's where you can really stand out and um, get a lot of PR um, by just building a a fan base up. Um, But I've never really used a a marketing company or a PR firm. Um, I've just kind of, you know, done crazy stuff like guerrilla marketing stuff that, you know, um, and Such just being out at the market. Uh, let's see. What was... Okay, so we did, um, there's a surfing competition here in California called the U.S. Open, and it brings out thousands of people. Um, and I told my friend, I'm like, we have a van that has our prints on it, that has our logo really big. And I'm like, let's get down there really early and just park the van out there and um, drive around and promote the, you know, handout bags and stuff. So we got up at like three in the morning and we get there at 4 a.m. And um, we park our car. And I don't know how this was even able to happen at the entrance. So um, it caused quite a commotion. There was all these guys on walkie talkies and they're like, what is she doing here? So like, <laughs> I just got this is the parking place that was available. And um, it was really kind of genius because there was a guy that came out from a tanning lotion companies like I had to pay $80,000 for a booth if you leave you tell me I'm gonna bring my car here and I'm like I'm not leaving you know and so it caught and I was like oh because I didn't 
plan on that happening, but I just kind of had an idea to go down there and that, you know, stuff like that happens, you know, when you don't have a plan that, oh, I'm going to do this, this, and this, just kind of get in the car and go. Um, but I know that I, I knew I could only do that once. Like I couldn't show up the next day and do that. Yeah. And so they had it roped off and <laughs> we're like, that darn girl, but you know, so <laughs> stuff like that. And I also think just going like, if, you know, you really want, if you have a higher end branding, you want to get it in certain people's hands, then kind of go to them, like doing that, doing the farmer's market in Malibu or parking your car on coast highway in Malibu, you're going to get a lot of attention that way. That doesn't cost you anything if you're just starting out, you know, but I have, I mean, if you, you know, if you can afford a a good PR company, I would say go for it because that they do that. They're really good with words and they can really, you know, or they have those connections that can get you the type of, um, get you in the hands of people that they work with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now you touched on social media. So did you embrace that quite early on? Um, Susie? No, I didn't. And I wish I would have because I was kind of late to the game. So I never really got into Twitter and I'm still not, but I started to get into Facebook and I was like loving it. Like we had a huge fan base. Um, We, you know, and um, there was all this communication and people were asking questions and I was communicating with them. And then he did the whole algorithm thing and kind of cut businesses off and you have to pay for it now. So now I'm loving Instagram, but you know, it's, um, it's not quite as big of a base as I I have built on, on Facebook. So, um, but I think it's great. The Instagram and Facebook still. Yeah. It's just kind of interesting because I know that there's companies out there, you know, like, you know, starting up their, their own businesses and they're kind of, uh, do you know what I mean? I say, because there's more competition and there's more vegan, uh, you know, like vegans become more popular. So there's more ethical and vegan brands coming out. And it's always that, you know, well, how do I, you know, get that customer loyalty and, and what have you. So it's interesting to hear from your perspective as a brand that's been around for a long time. Um, and obviously you've got a lot of that from literally physically going out to places like you mentioned, trade shows and veg fest and events and uh, and gift shows and stuff like that um and then coming on and, and using social media as well so it's just interesting yeah to find out though those kind of strategies particularly for for an existing brand so yeah um, no i feel they have a much easier time now to get because i mean there's a lot of vegan bloggers that have huge followings um yeah. like hundreds of thousands of them so i think there's like a built-in marketplace for a vegan company where you know we're vegan, but when I started my business, I wasn't vegan. We were more of an environmental company and we were donating solar panels and stuff like that. Even we were, even though we were donating to animal causes, um, I didn't even really start using the word vegan until we started our vegan, um, we started making vegan leather bags. Oh, cool. Okay. And when was that? Um, vegan, vegan leather bags we started making about three years ago. Oh, okay, right. Because I was going to ask you about the use of the word vegan in your your marketing materials. Because I noticed it's it's up there on your website under the the vegan leather. So, um, what about in what's your what are your thoughts now, particularly as you've been in business for so long, about you know the use of the word, how or how much to use the word vegan on your marketing materials or not, and whether that's changed as you. Yeah, know. well, on the vegan leather, I do because it looks like real leather. It feels like real leather, and. I still get to the point where people are like, are you sure this isn't, isn't leather? I'm like, it's vegan. <laughs> so I purposely use it on that. And then other people that come in and they're like, oh, this is a beautiful leather bag. I say, no, it's vegan. And they're like, what's that? And I explain to them. 
Um, and then um, on our hang tags, it says that we promote a plant-based diet because I just think it's just a no-brainer. It's, you know, it's environmental, you're helping animals, and it's for your health. Um, I got a certificate in plant-based nutrition from Cornell University, oh gosh, years ago. And I just, I, you know, there's the science behind it. So for me, it's more like a sub, uh, some little message to people. Like the more they see those terms, whether it's cruelty-free or vegan or plant-based or plant-strong or whatever it is, it's like one of those things, the more you hear it, the more it becomes normal and not a weird thing. Got it. So, but I don't use, to me, they're all the same. I don't see them as all, you know, I know some people think vegan means you can't use, you know, suede and I agree, but at the same time, I don't, I use them interchangeably for my, my company. Got it. Got it. What about when you're at the trade shows? Like, do you, cause I noticed like when I went to, it was, it was more of a food show. It was an, an, like a natural organics show uh-huh. um, last year. And this was here in Sydney even. And the amount of uh, people displaying their wares, they were, they had the word vegan right up there, you know, on their banners and everything. And even some like the business owners themselves weren't, some of them weren't necessarily vegan, but they recognized like the, the power of the word. So, and that's a big change from yeah. years ago when people would hide it. So, I mean, do you kind of broadcast it or do you just kind of let people know like like you say as they're um as they're kind of looking at the product so I'm just curious about how prominently you uh you use the word in your branding and marketing um I would say kind of medium I use it mediumly like um at trade shows we obviously you know we'll have it's on our hang tag so um and then we explain the vegan leather um but we don't have a huge banner that like says vegan or any or anything like that. In fact, the very first yeah. vegan festival that I've ever done was only like a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I'd never done one. And it was like, why haven't I been doing this? The people are so wonderful. <laughs> it's just like my people, like it was just such a, it's just such a good vibe. Like I, what did I do last year? That was, oh, I did the vegan beer fest in Pasadena. It was so much fun. Just the energy and, um, the positivity and um, it's, it's a great community, you know, so it's kind of neat yeah. to kind of tap into that now, even though I've been around for 20 years and be part of it. Um, so I love that. So I was going to ask you who are your main customers? Um, obviously they're not solely vegan. No, they're been not. Running your business all this time. So what kind of people, who is your kind of key target market? What kind of people mostly buy your, your bag? Well, it used to be like more like the college girl, um, the 20 something, but now, you know, I'll do a craft show and it's like the mom comes, the grandma comes and the little girl comes. So you have three generations of people because, you know, we, you know, who doesn't not like a little canvas bag with pigs on it? You know, it's just, it's the cuteness that sells itself and the quality. We, we, <laughs> we have really good quality products. So, um, so kind of our, our customer is not just one it kind of goes all over the place. And there are people who buy our bags just because we are a vegan and there's others that don't, you know, so, um, it, yeah, no, for sure. No, that, that makes sense. Um, so now you mentioned, um, early when you first started out, you were handcrafting the bags yourself and you had a day job. At what point, Susie, were you able to work on uh, bungalow 360 full time as like your main business? Um, that was a real scary time because, you know, I, I was kind of living paycheck to paycheck. 
I didn't have a lot of money saved, so it wasn't like I could just go out and live and make ends meet. You know, I'd have to do it solely on on my bags. So um, on the weekends, I was doing doing it, and I finally just wasn't really happy in my job, and so I finally quit. And I just, um, you just, I had to just go out there and do it. And what that what happens when you know, obviously, I saw a potential and I saw sales. Um, and I kind of did the math, but, um, what happens when you do that is then you have to take, you have to go out there and make, you have to do things that make sure that you are successful, you know, or else you don't pay rent, that kind of thing. And there was at one point I had like five credit cards with a, you know, $70,000 balance on it, trying to juggle everything, which I wouldn't recommend, but that's just the way I ended up doing it. Michelle, excellent. Great. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I've had a couple of people I've interviewed who said something similar. It was like literally we've got our last. Uh, in fact, I interviewed somebody recently that's going to be on the show in a while. And they said they were literally they were down to their last four thousand dollars. They were supposed to be moving house. And instead, they invested it in this sales course because they knew they had to get really good at selling. And it was literally a kind of do or die moment. And, uh, you know, it worked out well for them. And sometimes, yeah, you have to kind of take that plunge and you you don't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, oh, well, maybe it'll work, maybe it'll work won't it's like right this has got to work and I'm gonna you know pull out all the stops to make that happen mm-hmm. so I, I certainly can it lights yeah, that, that, that fire where oh yeah I'll do it next week <laughs> I'm gonna do this instead like you kind of know that there's this is it you know it's do or die so um, exactly exactly so Susie what advice would you give so to people like yourself who you know they've got their day job they're quite creative you know they'd love to sort of you know make their own brand whether it's bags or you know whatever a jewelry whatever kind of creative endeavor they might do what advice would you give them uh, about you know what they need to take into account before making that jump from employment to self-employed um I would come up with a business plan <laughs> and I would have some, <laughs> you know, some backup and some, you know, some signs that the product is in demand and it's sellable um, and have a backup plan, you know, um, but it's, it's kind of hard to like, you kind of know in your heart, like, oh, I'm just going to do this or you don't, you know, like if you go to a market and you don't sell anything, then I wouldn't quite quit my day job yet. But if you're at the point where you're so busy that you can barely do both jobs, then I would say go for it. You know, you can kind of see the signs of, oh, I'm onto something here. This is going to be good, you know. Um, and yeah. the, the way yeah. I always looked at it, like I, I was like, well, if it doesn't work out, I can always go get another job. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not like it's the end of the world. You know, if it doesn't work right. out, you can always yeah. go back and get a job. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, you touched on this a little bit earlier about funding the business, because obviously every business, you know, even an online only one has got some startup costs. Um, can you whatever if you're whatever you're comfortable with sharing? And I know you've touched on that already. You had some credit cards in the beginning. What have been some of the the methods you've used to get started and, and keep the business going? I pretty much put whatever I made went back into the company. And so it kind of grew slowly. You know, that's why, you know, for three to five years, I can't really remember how long I was was doing just the handcrafted, but it's because I was slowly building it. Like I would go out and do a craft fair, I'd make money, then I go buy fabric. And, you know, if, if it's, if you're someone who has a business plan and you have funding, then you probably wouldn't want to 
go that route unless you want to experience a lot of um, the nitty gritty of building a business from scratch, you know? So uh, that's just, um, I would have loved to have someone say, Oh, you have a great idea. Here's the funding, go make a business, you know what I mean? But that's not how it happened for me. So that's kind of all I know is um, I didn't really have a budget to work with. I just kind of, um, just went with my gut and followed like, Oh, here's an event. I'm going to make stuff. And then I sell stuff and then I go back and get fabric. It's kind of a, and just kept growing as growing as I had more customers and more sales, but it's a slow process doing it that way. Yeah. It's a different model, isn't it? There's that. And then there's obviously, of course, you know, investors and then there's issues around, you know, how much of your company do you want to give up and that kind of thing. Right. So I guess it all comes down to what, what you feel comfortable with and like you touched on earlier, how big or otherwise you, you want your business to be. So. Yeah, cool. Um, so kind of final kind of couple of questions now onto you touched on this earlier where you said, you know, there was one point in your business where, you know, you had the factory. I think it was in India you mentioned and, you know, the, the product came back really poorly and you just kind of wanted to give up. And obviously, you know, you've got to have some certain qualities to run a business. You know, it forces you out of your comfort zone. There's lots of stress involved, mm-hmm. um, you know, when things don't go right. So what personal qualities do you believe are essential to staying the course? Because you definitely stayed the course and running a successful business yeah I think you have to have a sense of humor and be able to laugh at yourself you need to be a real hard worker I mean I can't tell you how many mornings I got I get up at you know in the beginning would get up at 4 a.m load my car drive to LA unload my car set up my booth you know what I mean so you just I know some people like would not do that um and so you just have to have a real strong work ethic um and what else? And you don't be afraid to fail. You know, um, I, I look at all my failures as they opened a door to something that ended up being very successful. So, um, and just go for it. That's kind of nice. Yeah, no, I like that. Do you do anything like to sort of maintain, um, you know, a strong emotional well-being, like, I don't know, meditation or sport or anything? Does like red that? wine count? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I do. I I love to run long distance, um, but it is hard. It's super hard because for me, like I did CrossFit for two years. And I was like, in the best shape I've ever been at. But it was, I mean, I had to get, I got up 6 a.m. five days a week and I went to my hour class. But then we moved and that CrossFit isn't in my area anymore. So then I really had to, you know, it was really hard to get out and get back into it because I had to really be motivate myself. So, you know, I like to jump on a trampoline. I do rowing. I run. And I try to get it in the first thing in the morning because if I don't, it's, I just, it, it's, the business sucks all my energy yeah, out and then it's just you. like, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I'm a big, big believer into getting out in nature, not disconnecting from nature. Um, and we're surrounded by avocado farms and stuff. So for me, it's, it's part of, you know, being out in nature is still part of, you know, we have a pond that um, we can go down to that, you know, there's just such a, so much wildlife and very inspiring. So 
Um, ah, wonderful. It's interesting that you've made that move. Like you say, you're you're in the, on the farm in the hill, surrounded by nature, and you're still able to to operate your business, which I think is worth pointing out as well. Um, and so, do you still go? Like, do you still personally like go to a lot of these trades? Like, do you still have to kind of come into the the cities uh, and what have you, or is it mainly you're mainly spending time at home and you've got your sales manager and reps going out to? Yeah, I used to just up until a couple of years ago. I I used to still travel to all the trade shows just because I like to get go to New York. I like to go to Atlanta. You know, it was like a different space to be in. But um, now that we have our sales representative, he kind of goes and takes care of that. And he's a much better salesperson than I ever would be. I'm just not like a salesperson. I never have. Well, you must be pretty good. No, I was always about if you like my product, buy it. If not, you know what I mean? I don't know how to sell my product. So I, we have a great sales guy that goes and does all the trade shows. And, um, so I do, I get kind of isolated and I do kind of miss that, but I mean, we're not that, I mean, we're 20 minutes from the nearest beach town, but just we're up in the hill. So, um, and we're on lots, lots of acreage, but and we, we, you know, prior to that, we, we made the decision, oh, you could spend money on an office and hire a receptionist and have all these bills. But environmentally, it just makes sense to have solar panels that run your home and your business. We collect rainwater that, you know, feeds all the plants and, and um, all of that. So it's kind of a learning experience to be out here um, in that, you know. For sure. And that's wonderful. I just think it's good for people to know that, you know, you don't necessarily always, I mean, maybe when you're starting out perhaps, but, you know, you don't always have to be, you know, right there in the thick of the, the city. You can kind of pretty much operate your business from, from everywhere. And you've obviously found a way to make it work in a really sustainable um, and holistic way, which is um, wonderful. So final question, what's your long-term vision for Bungalow 360 and for yourself? Yeah. Um if you have one. <laughs> yeah, well, the whole farming thing, I've like when we first moved here, I was like, I'm going to do a kale farm and I'm going to do basil and tomatoes. And I did not take into consideration that the wildlife, like you plant kale, it's gone the next day. Um, and so I've been struggling <laughs> trying to grow stuff and it's been frustrating. But we finally, I finally had my first sales to some local chefs and I'm growing passion fruit. Um, so we're going to kind of go full forward with turning that the rest of the acreage into a passion fruit farm um, because that's what we can grow here and the squirrels yeah. and the bunnies leave it alone. Um, wow. And for the business, it's just, I kind of, I'm in that little sweet spot. So I kind of don't, you know, um, I don't, I don't see, Oh, I need to grow. I don't need to, you know, everything's kind of perfect right now, but you know, you never, you have to adapt because we don't know what the climate of the future holds with politics and all that kind of stuff can change things very quickly. So we're kind of always open to being adapted and, you know, we have to be resourceful and, and stuff like that going forward. Got it. Wonderful. That's been fantastic. It's been really, really inspiring. I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing about your story and your your journey and everything. It's been absolutely great. And I think particularly for people like yourself, you know, who come from that creative um, background, I think it's been really great for them to learn, you know, how to um, turn that into uh, a business. Yeah, how to turn their, their passion into a business. So really appreciate you sharing everything you have, Susie. Thank you so much for coming on the Thank show. Thank you. Today. It was a pleasure. 
So that was Susie Push of Bungalow 360. You can find out more at bungalow360.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 59. Now for our vegan business news roundup. The second annual vegan mac and cheese smackdown in Baltimore, Maryland tripled its attendance from last year, reports the Baltimore Sun. Around 3,000 people came along to sample plant-based cheeses from 28 contestants that included both home cooks and caterers who brought their wares to the cook-off at Baltimore City Community College recently. The Smackdown was part of the inaugural Baltimore Vegan Weekend, a series of events throughout the city celebrating vegan cuisine. Hosted by Pep Foods, a local vegan collective, and Baltimore Vegan Drinks, the event featured a mix of repeat contestants from last year, along with new ones. Some participants used vegan cheese created by well-known brands such as Dyer and Miyoko's Kitchen, while others created their own nut-based versions. Brenda Sanders, one of the event's organisers, attributed the growth of the event to the appeal of the vegan lifestyle. She said, folks are just ready to try something different. This whole health movement is really picking up steam in Baltimore right now. So I love mac and cheese. And to be honest, I can't really be bothered to make it myself because, as you'll know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, the kitchen is not my domain. (laughs) So I totally approve of these vegan mac and cheese smackdowns where I can enjoy other people's creations. And this is a great initiative that can be replicated in other cities. So maybe have a think about how you could get involved in organising something like that in your own city. Canadian packaged meat company Maple Leaf Foods has acquired U.S. plant protein firm Lightlife for $140 million, reports Food Business News. Established in 1979, Lightlife has a 38% share in the U.S. refrigerated plant-based protein foods category and turned over around $40 million in sales in 2016. It manufactures more than 30 products, including tempeh, hot dogs, breakfast foods and burgers, at its facility in Massachusetts. Brynwood VI acquired the brand from Conagra Foods in 2013, and since then the company has significantly expanded its sales, production and profitability, according to Brynwood Partners. Michael McCain, president and CEO of Maple Leaf Foods, says the move is part of the company's growth strategy. So we're continuing to see more of this, meat companies buying up or buying shares in plant-based businesses. It certainly goes to show how popular the plant-based category is becoming. How it plays out for animals and the environment in the long run remains to be seen. The world's largest coconut water brand has ventured into the dairy-free milk market and expects to approach a billion dollars in sales this year, reports Bloomberg News. All Market, the parent company of Vita Coco, has branched out into coconut milk, coconut oil and other products. They've done this in response to consumers continuing to seek out healthy alternatives to supermarket staples. 
Sales of regular milk declined in the US between 2011 and 2016, but plant-based alternatives, including coconut milk, have gone up 61%. Vitacoco coconut milk is set to launch in March, first at the Safeway supermarket chain and then at other grocers and independent retailers. The company's expansion has resulted in large beverage companies showing an interest in potentially acquiring it in order to tap into the growth of the dairy-free sector. So this is another example of the growth in plant-based milks. And I still can't quite get over the fact that in 20 years since I went vegan, we've gone from having just one or two soy-based options to a multitude of dairy-free alternatives. And the more we can wean people off cow's milk and other animal-based milks and onto plant-based milks, the better. So this is pretty exciting stuff. Finally, Lisa Frank, a US brand known for producing whimsical commercial design for school supplies and other products that are marketed mostly to children, is getting ready to launch a range of vegan cosmetics, reports Veg News. The line is a collaboration between Frank and Glamour Dolls Makeup and will feature iconic imagery such as Technicolor unicorns, dolphins and bears. This will be Frank's first venture into adult products. The line will include six items, a blush brush, lip balm, matte mousse, liquid liner, unicorn lippy, highlight powder and vegan leather makeup bag. A crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter has already raised $50,000 more than its original goal and it provides customers with the opportunity to engage with the final product development. Backers will be able to vote on product names, pick shades and get behind-the-scenes looks at how Glamour Dolls' Jessica Romano, who's the lead makeup designer for the project, develops vegan cosmetics. So that's a really handy thing if you're in the beauty business to get that behind the scenes look. So this is yet another example of the beauty industry heading in a positive direction with more brands and celebrities making their lines vegan. And this really helps to mainstream vegan products and breaks down the stereotypes that vegan living can't be glamorous. Um, You know, I personally love my bling and my sparkle and my red lippy. So I love the fact that more and more cosmetics are becoming cruelty free. Fantastic. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business, and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.